Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Latin American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elena McGrath. With me today is Federico Freitas, who is an Associate Professor of History at North Carolina State University. He is the author of Nationalizing Nature, Iguazu Falls, and the National Parks at the Brazil-Argentina Border, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. He is also the co-editor of Big Water, The Making of the Borderlands Between Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay out from University of Arizona Press in 2018. Thank you, Fred. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a great, uh, um, I'm very happy to be here uh, talking to my about my book with you. Wonderful. Well, can you start by telling us a little bit about your own background and how you came to this project? Yeah, sure. Um, so um, I'm, I'm from Brazil and um, I had a career as a graphic designer doing graphic design and animation in Brazil for about 10 years. And then I decided to return to academia. And then eventually I, I came to the United States to do my PhD. And I always had interest in, in environmental history um, and also in the history of the Atlantic Forest. I can talk more about the Atlantic Forest later on. And when I was uh, in, in grad school when I'm doing my, my PhD, I knew I wanted to do something with environmental history of Brazil, uh, something related to the Atlantic forest, the history of the Atlantic forest in Brazil. And I started to look into possible topics. And I had this uh, a couple of years ago in Brazil, I was uh, touring with um, this hardcore punk band in South America. And I remember when we were coming back from Argentina, uh, we were uh, uh, traveling from Buenos Aires to to Sao Paulo by bus. And I remember that I noticed that when we were getting close to the border in Argentina, getting close to the border in Brazil, and I look around, it was all, everything was forest. And as the moment that we crossed the border, uh, everything changed, the landscape changed, it was everything uh, farms. And that uh, fact uh, stayed uh, in the back of my mind. So when it was uh, years later, I was in the United States, I was at Stanford um, trying to figure out what my, my topic would be. I remembered that. And then I, I went online and went to Google Maps and looked online, the a satellite image of this region. And at a time, uh, 10 years ago, 12 years ago, you could see stark difference in, in the landscape in these satellite images between the Brazilian side of the border and the Argentine side of the border. And then I decided I, I'm going to do an environmental history of this borderland. Uh, this borderland is known as the tribal frontier, the triplice frontera, triple frontera. And... And it's the borderland between Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay. And it's kind of like famous borderland in South America. So I thought it would be a great uh, uh, opportunity because the, there's like the borders and, and there's different uh, social, historical, environmental processes happening at each side of the border. So I, I thought I'm going to do an environmental history of this borderland. Um, it turns out that you always start with a very big, wide, bold project and then you end up narrowing down it to something more manageable. So I end up uh, focusing on the these two national parks that were created at this borderland in the 1930s, one um, in Argentina, one in Brazil, uh, to protect this uh, massive waterfalls that exist there, the Iguazu Falls, because uh, there was something more manageable. I could use that, uh, the history of these two parks as a window to talk more about the 
the larger region uh, as a whole. That's how I, I started with this project. And it was interesting because I'm not from that region uh, of Brazil. I'm from Sao Paulo, big city. I've never, uh, I don't have any experience there. I don't have family connections there, but it was interesting to look to um, look at that uh, region as sort of a, an outsider. And that's how I, I got interested in this topic. As an outsider in a hardcore punk band trying to cross the border. That's an excellent origin story for thinking about what border borderlands mean and and landscapes changing landscapes um so um for listeners who may also be outsiders who have never been um to this region what what makes the landscape of iguazu falls the the triple frontier and so unique and, and what is the atlantic forest okay so um this is a really interesting question so that region is dominated by the the Parana River, which is part of the uh, Parana River Basin, which is the second largest river basin in South America after the Amazon River Basin. It's a huge uh, uh, river basin, and the the Iguazu Falls, they are uh, waterfalls that are on the Iguazu River, which is one of the main uh, tributaries of the, of the Perna River at that region, and the Iguazu River in its final stretch uh, makes the border between Brazil and Argentina. Uh, the falls itself are really uh, interesting. There are these massive falls. Um, for the sake of comparison, they are bigger than the Niagara Falls, um, and they are not only bigger, but they are more interesting, at least from my own opinion, because they have uh, hundreds of, they are divided into hundreds of, of individual falls. So it's this massive complex of, of individual waterfalls. And like Niagara, they are uh, binational waterfalls. They are divided between Brazil and Argentina. And today they're... Um, the most one of the most visited places uh, visited by tourists uh, in Brazil and Argentina. So there you have like a massive industry, uh, tourism industry uh, built around visitation to these waterfalls. Um, the larger area where they are located, which they are known as the Triple Frontier, uh, they have being an area of colonial dispute between Spain and Portugal for for centuries since colonial times. They were also an area uh, where in the 17th century you had um, some Jesuit uh, settlements there, uh, Jesuit slash Guarani settlements there that had been attacked, being attacked by by uh, people from, from uh, the captaincy of Sao Paulo for the the people from from Sao Paulo were um, slave raiders. Um, later on, you have uh, the war of the tribal alliance in the 19th century, uh, which uh, pitted Argentina and Brazil against Paraguay, and much of a lot of that happened in this larger area of the tribal frontier. And up until the 1950s, um, this area was still a frontier in that uh, beginning in the 1950s, um, different parts of, of the border started to be colonized by different groups. In the case of Brazil, you have um, settlers, mostly white Brazilian settlers of European descent, mostly German Brazilians or Italian Brazilians, coming from other parts of the country, from the south, from the state of Rio Grande do Sul, moving to that area, uh, clearing the, the forest and 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 creating farms. Eventually, some of them will cross the border into Paraguay. And you also have uh, on the Argentine side, in a different timeline, also some colonization projects happening in the province of Misiones. And in this area, you also have, in the 1970s, uh, one of the largest infrastructure projects in South America, uh, starting there, which is the, the Itaipu, uh, dam, which is, which is this largest hydroelectric dam 
which at the time that it was built, it was uh, finished in 1982. Uh, at the time that it was finished, it was the largest uh, hydroelectric dam in the world. It was uh, split by between Brazil and Paraguay. And the building of the Itaipu marks the shift uh, of Paraguay from a country that historically uh, was deeply connected to Argentina and it started to be deeply connected to Brazil, not only because of Itaipu, but also because of, of, of uh, highways and, and, and other things. Um, today, beginning in the 1980s, 1990s, um, the Paraguayan side of, of this uh, borderland started to be this center of, of, of commerce, of important imported goods, um, and also a center of counterfeit goods. Uh, you have a lot of Chinese influence as, as China becomes uh, becomes to industrialize itself. It starts to to become more influential, influential in this uh, border area. And also, um, with the war on terror, um, there was this uh, concern by by. U.S. authorities that that area would become a center of uh, international terrorism because there is a, um, a community of, of uh, immigrant, immigrant community from, from Shia uh, Lebanese there and they, they, they were afraid that that would become a center of like international terrorism for some reason. Um, the Atlantic Forest uh, let's talk a little bit about the Atlantic Forest. So the Atlantic Forest, uh, Mata Atlântica, how we call it in, in Portuguese, is this large uh, swath of, of tropical and subtropical rainforest that is exist, exists in Brazil and is separate from the Amazon. Uh, but like the Amazon, is highly biodiverse. You have several endemic species that only can only be found in the Atlantic forest, uh, encompasses a, a huge swath of, of coastal Brazil. The eastern seaboard of Brazil uh, used to be covered by Atlantic forest. Originally, uh, there's estimates that the area of the Atlantic forest, when the Portuguese first arrived in Brazil in the 16th century, uh, covered uh, over 600 square miles which is an area um, the size of Alaska. And this is the area where most of the Portuguese colonization initially occurred in Brazil. Uh, you have uh, all the classic cycles of, of, of colonial and 19th century commodities happening in areas of Atlantic forest, things like sugarcane, gold, coffee, and also later on in the 20th century, industrialization all happened in parts that used to be covered by Atlantic forest. Um, over 70% of Brazilian population still lives in areas that used to be covered by the Atlantic forest. Uh, big cities like Rio, Sao Paulo are in areas of, that, of the Atlantic forest. And today, um, it was... Um, most of the forest is gone. There's only uh, seven, five percent left, and divided into small fragments. And it became this sort of like, and in, in Brazilian environmental history, became this sort of a cautionary tale for what could happen if you don't, if you let development uh, have, uh, occur without checks. Um, became this classic th theme, uh, the most famous work on the history of the Atlantic Forest is uh, with Brodex and, and Firebrand by, by the late Warren Dean. And a lot of works uh, on the environmentalists of Brazil deal with the Atlantic Forest. And, and I was interested in doing that. And I was interested in looking at this. Uh, I became interested in looking at this Part of the Atlantic Forest that is uh, located at this uh, western uh, frontier of Brazil, 
that is usually not very looked at by the uh, literature because it expands into Paraguay, into uh, Argentina, and people, uh, Brazilianists who look at the Atlantic Forest, they think to think of the Atlantic Forest as this uh, type of biome that's only Brazilian, but when in fact it also uh, can also uh, find Atlantic Forest like. Uh, uh, biological formations in in Paraguay and Argentina, and my book kind of look at, at that by looking by focusing on these two parks at, the, at this borderland. Yeah, I think that that explanation is really helpful, and it brings together uh, so many things, but at least three things that are so crucial to your book. One is um, the state of the frontier as as an area of national security concern but then also the state of the forest as an area of longstanding biodiversity concern and sort of natural, something that is unique or seen to be unique to Brazil. But then um, as you, as you point out in the book, the kind of the question of, of pre- preserving biodiversity and nature really opens up the question of what, what belongs to a nation. So let's, let's talk about some of the terms in which you make your argument. Um, one of the phrases that I really like that you use is the geopolitics of nature preservation. Um, and as someone who is, um, who works a little bit in environmental history myself, but, um, you know, when, when people generally think about the national park and the kind of heroic myth and history of it, they think about Yellowstone, they think about preserving pristine wilderness, protecting biodiversity. Of course, Yellowstone has its own history that goes far beyond that, as you, as you point out, and many others too. Um, but your book argues compellingly that the story of the Brazilian and Argentine national parks on both sides of the waterfalls is as much about the creation and maintenance of secure international borders as it is about conservation, and also that conservation is a preoccupation with being able to surveil and control what happens in a particular space. So it is also about controlling territory. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, So by the time the two countries created national parks at this borderland, first motivation to create the national parks was to preserve the waterfalls. The waterfalls were already uh, this, uh, the thing, the feature that that attracted attention to this specific location. There were people visiting and um, it was a waterfall that by law, by an international treaty was divided between the two countries. So um, you have this um, sort of like um, dynamic that, that, happens uh, connecting people uh, on the two sides of the border in which every time one side decided to do something to preserve the waterfall, like pass a law or, or expropriate land, the other side would do the same. But beyond that, the two parks, they were not limited to the waterfalls and to the immediate area surrounding the waterfalls, but they also expanded expanded to um, other parts uh, of the of this region. And by doing that they end up protecting uh, large expenses off of the Atlantic forest. Um, one thing that I, I found out when I look at the at the debate about um, creating these parks in the 1930s on the two sides of the border is that although uh, concerns about the conservation of the forest were in the mind of many people who were proposing these parks to be created, there were also other concerns, and these are primarily geopolitical. Uh, Brazil and Argentina uh, had been this kind of like rivals uh, in South America for uh, many uh, decades, for many years. And this area, although um, the borders of this area were already set by the time the sparks were created, this area had a history of a border or, or a border conflict between the two countries. Um, and by the time they, they were 
discussing the creation of these two parks. Uh, people were also discussing on the two sides of the border the fact that this area was sparsely populated. Uh, this area, the borders uh, at this region were porous. People were crossing the border all the time. In the case of Brazil, for example, you had these Argentine firms that were exploiting uh, wild yerba mate on the Brazilian side, and they would employ uh, a labor force that was, was primarily uh, Guarani, native Brazilian. Um, and you have all these Brazilian uh, government employees who were traveling to this region, and they would do, write this report saying there was an absurd that uh, you travel, were traveling in Brazilian territory and could not find people who uh, spoke Portuguese only, people were only speaking uh, Spanish or Guarani, and Brazil needed to do something to uh, nationalize that, that border. So the creation of the Brazilian park was uh, envisioned as a way to uh, use the park as a tool to funnel investment to nationalize that border. And it's the same in Argentina. And Argentina is even more uh, extreme in that um, the Argentines, when they created the park, they also created an entire uh, national park system uh, with a national park legislation. And they envisioned this national park system as a way to nationalize not only that border with Brazil, but other border other borders that Argentina had, like the border with Chile. So they created the Nahuawapi National Park. Uh, and they envisioned, uh, they set into law uh, instruments to use uh, the national park structure that they had just created to nationalize the border. So one of the things that they did was to provide in a law that uh, each national park that was set to be created at the, at the border would have a section of the national park that would be uh, used for colonization purposes. They, they would The national park agents would create uh, settlements would create towns, would sell uh, lots for settlers, um, and would sell uh, both urban lots and agrarian lots. They would establish infrastructure uh, for these uh, settlements, they would establish uh, services, hospitals, um, uh, schools. And the National Park uh, Agency would uh, manage uh, these settlements. So that's something that was unique. You don't see that happening in other examples of national park in other countries. You only see that in Argentina and in a lesser scale in Brazil. In Brazil, they didn't do that to that scale, but they used money. They used money uh, that was was destined to the national park to develop uh, the towns and the border towns that they had in their region to create also uh, to open uh, highways to create hospitals to create um, uh, to build uh, air, airports and all that. So what you have here a very clear example of national parks being used for uh, to promote development, not only development in terms of tourism, but development in terms of like actual uh, uh, settlement and colonization of of, of areas that were deemed as sparsely populated. And this is pretty interesting because um, I think there's a, uh, a case to be made that national parks are a type of development. Um, and they can, and the way that this uh, countries see these national parks was that they saw the national parks as a way to bring development to the borderland and to uh, plant a flag at the border to demonstrate that from now on that border uh, had been nationalized, had been terrorized, uh, the nation state had taken control of their border and the national park was one of the things that they're using to do that. And a lot of times when you think about national parks, we focus too, so much in, in, in conservation that we forget the fact that national parks are, uh, at the end of the day, they are national. They are supposed to be this national symbol, the symbol for the nation. And in the case of these two national parks, this is pretty clear.
I think one of the one of the things that I really enjoyed about your book was starting with the creation of these parks as as you call them paper parks, right? Where the national government just says these belong to us and you you cite examples of people trekking out to see them and seeing maybe a sign on a tree, but very but nothing else, right? And so so one of the things your book does really well is show that when you say national national parks are nationalizing, that there's an infrastructure built, and I think that case for it as a form of development makes sense, um, and as and as a way of encouraging settlement, as you say. Um, so, who was settling in this area, and then when did when did that preoccupation with putting people into the park change to a preoccupation with controlling access? So. Um... In the case of uh, Argentina, Argentina had a very uh, explicit policy of using the park that he had created there to promote colonization. So they um, had this model of the type of person they wanted to attract. Ideally, it would be uh, an Argentine national born in Argentina. Um, they, there's some debates about whether or not uh, they would accept uh, immigrants from Europe to settle there, but there's, uh, there's some people who were against that because they thought that um, because that was an area of, 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 uh, that could be influenced by, by neighboring countries, they wanted to make sure the people who uh, settled there were actually uh, Argentines. Um, so they wanted to bring Argentines. Um, they had this motto of like um, nuclear family. Ideally, they would be um, married couples of Argentines who would settle there, people who would buy lots either in the town that they created there that eventually became uh, Puerto Iguazu or in the some uh uh, rural lots that they had inside of the national park to for sale, and they had also this model of behavior that they uh, they expect uh, these settlers to follow. Like they they're supposed to work, they're not supposed to be unemployed, they cannot drink, they uh, should go to church, all this kind of thing. And of course, uh, when they try to uh, force settlers to fit into that model, things that's when you have the conflicts because people didn't follow the, this model and all that. So I, I talk a little bit about that in my book. On the Brazilian side, they they didn't need to create a settlement inside the territory of the Brazilian National Park because they already had uh, a town nearby, a town that was created as a development project before the creation of the National Park. Uh, that, that town became Foz do Iguaçu. And also uh, because um, Brazil, the, this part of Brazil, um, a couple of years after uh, the park was created, was already receiving, was already the target of a um, colonization project. And, but in Brazil, what you have is um, you had a dispute between the federal government and the state government on who owned the public land that was uh, used to uh, create the national park. And that dis- dispute dragged on for a couple of years and while this dispute is being uh, disputed in courts, you have um, colonization ways of, 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 of settlers coming from other parts of Brazil. These are the white Brazilian settlers of German and, and Italian descent that I, I talked before. And this part of, of, of Brazil, of Western Parana, that's the name, the name of the state there, it was... Uh, an area that had a lot of, that had a history of land conflict, a history of, of land grabbing, of, of conflict over land, of colonization companies uh, 
setting uh, selling land with dubious uh, land titles for settlers and then expelling them and sell, selling the land again. And you also have uh, a history of, of settler uprisals in this part of Brazil. So because of this, all this uh, land incertitude, this dispute between federal government and state government and this uh, uh, history of, of, of land violence, you had a process in that you had people starting to sell land inside the national park that had been created 10, 20 years ago in Brazil to settlers with uh, fake uh, deeds. And so you have a lot of settlers uh, settling inside a section of the national park in Brazil, and that will become a problem that would be solved in the 1970s with the relocation and removal of the settlers. Um, so these are the type of people who are uh, settling inside uh, the, the two parks. Uh, settlers in the case of Brazil, settlers from all the ports of Brazil, and the case of Argentina, settlers that are being attracted by the the National Park Agency that they uh, hoped it were like fit in that model that they created. Um, what was the second part of the question that you asked? Um, so the second part of the question um, was after at what point did um, did the policy around encouraging certain kinds of people to settle change? And I actually think this would be a great great time to go into another question I had for you, which is um, your book your book thinks a lot about um, what it means that the military regimes in both um, Brazil and Argentina had very significant relationships with these parks, right? And, and had a huge impact on the policy changes in these parks. So do you want to talk a little bit about the military regimes and what happened in the 70s? Sure. I think that's a great, uh, great question. So since the beginning, um, uh, when the parks were created in the 1930s, you have people, you had people uh, and the National Park Agents in Argentina and the Forest Service in Brazil who thought that these parks should be used to protect the forests, to protect nature. So you have, but these are like uh, a minority voice uh, in the two countries at a time. By the 19, late 1950s, the 1960s, um, the people who were advocating for nature protection to be the primary uh, goal of these parks uh, had became the main people uh, in charge of these national parks. There was a generation, gener- generational change, and the people, the first uh, national park pro- proponents, they retired, they died. So you have these people who are like, uh, they were like um, forestry people, uh, agronomists, and these are the people who think that national parks should actually be used to pr- primarily to protect nature. At the same time, you have uh, this shift, this debate uh, internationally. At, at the you have these meetings at the. Uh, at the IUCN, which is the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and the people who were in charge of taking care of national parks, both in Brazil and Argentina, they are connected to this this uh, this community, this larger international community. And at these meetings, you have debates about people trying to define what is a national park because you have different countries and different parts of the world creating national parks, and, and they are all... Uh, are created in different ways. So you have this debate about what is a national park, and that's when, uh, at this level, they decide to define national parks as uh, these places without people, where people should not live, uh, that places that were territories that were uh, devised to protect nature exclusively. So, in the 1960s, you have this 
sort of like paradigm shift happening both internationally and nationally in Brazil and Argentina. And you start to see this push to remove all the people who are living both in the national park in Argentina and in the national park in Brazil from the area of the national park. In Argentina, that would be a more challenging process because in Argentina, they not only had settlers, but they also have an entire town existing inside the territory of the national park. So one of the things that they did was to uh, retrace the boundaries of the national park to remove the town from the area of the national park. They they uh, gave uh, the management, management of the town to the uh, province of Misiones. And they also removed some of the settlers that were living uh, in other parts of the of the national park, close to the where the where the waterfalls are located, they send these people to the town that they had just removed from the territory of the park. In Brazil, things were more complicated because uh, you have uh, about twenty five hundred people living as settlers living inside the Brazilian park. They had farms they they had created. They have uh, schools, they had churches, they had soccer teams. And people were, for, for a while, uh, Brazilian, uh, people working at the Brazilian, uh, the Brazilian agencies that dealt with the national parks, they were discussing whether or not they should just uh, split apart the national park into two ports and, and have the middle part where the people were living as non-national park or if it, they just ju- try to to expel these people. And they eventually decided to expel these people. There's an entire debate about um, it would not bode well to the Brazilian state to not be able to remove people from a, a national park because that would be demonstrated the Brazilian state and the Brazilian government had no capacity to... to uh, force people away from a territory that it controlled, especially in, in, in an area of, of, of the border area and an area that was at the time deemed as a, of national security interest. So they go for uh, the idea of removing these people. It turns out that uh, this all these changes, they happen on both sides of the border at a time that the two countries were controlled by military dictatorship. In the case of Brazil, you have uh, the military dictatorship that happened, that started in 1964 with a coup. And between 1964 and 1985, Brazil is is, is controlled by different uh, military governments. And that's the the government that uh, carried out this removal of settlers from from the Brazilian park. In Argentina, you also have that happened primarily at the time of the, the Argentine Revolution, which is the, this uh, period of military uh, control of, of Argentina uh, that uh, happens in the mid-1960s all the way to the early 1970s. And some settlers linger in the, Brazilian, in the Argentine park and eventually are removed uh, by, the, by the second military dictatorship during the Dirty War. So that shows that um, to remove these settlers, uh, what you have was a top-down process that used some of the tools, some of the violent and um, authoritarian tools of these that were uh, at hand uh, by these military dictatorships to remove these people. Uh, in the case of Brazil, they not only use this uh, more authoritarian tools, violent tools, but also they used the agrarian reform structure that had been built by the Brazilian military dictatorship to remove the settlers. When the Brazilian military dictatorship started, one of the things that they recognized was that they would need to do an agrarian reform. And the way that they chose to do an agrarian reform was by doing an agrarian reform 
by promoting colonization. That's when they uh, started to send people to the Amazon in colonization projects. They recognized that there was a lot of people uh, without land in Brazil. And instead of like uh, expropriating large latifundia, they decided to, to not touch that and just send people to, to frontier areas to give them land. And they used that uh, to those legal and, and policy tools to remove the people from the, the Brazilian National Park from within the National Park. They used the National Park as a sort of a, like a test case for this type of new policies. And you have a lot of like uh, violence, people being arrested, people resisting, people being sent to jail because they're resisting removal people being threatened with uh, torture, uh, all the kind of things that is common uh, throughout this period in both Brazil and Argentina. Yeah, I think that's so interesting, the ways that, um, as you say, that the military governments were able to use the parks in to, to try out policy, but then also the military governments had the infrastructure to control the parks in ways that maybe earlier governments had not done. Um, so... Let's talk a little bit about how this example, um, or how the how the Brazilian and the Argentine cases compare to other histories of national parks. Um, so, for example, there's a a growing literature on Mexican national parks and and their entanglement with the revolutionary state, or on U.S. national parks, of course. Um, so, how does how does this case uh, compare with those? That's a really interesting question. Um, so. In the case of the, U- of the United States, a lot of the literature s- since the 90s on on national parks had had tried to focus on national parks as acts of displacement. They tried to focus on the peoples who were displaced by the creation of these protected areas, uh, indigenous people or rural people who were created, who were displaced, or who no longer had access to the natural resources encircled by this, the creation of these national parks. And they uh, have tried to uncover that, cast a light on that history, because that's usually a history that is concealed by the, or used to be concealed by the uh, standard discourse on national park, the type of discourse that you see on on um, official literature by the National Park Service, and all that. I think that that has changed uh, in recent years, but um, up until the '90s and the 2000s, uh, you the normal uh, narrative about national parks was that they were. Uh, created to protect wilderness, uh, this idea that wilderness were these primeval uh, natural regions that uh, never had human uh, habitation in them, and, and, and this idea that you had to recreate this, uh, bring nature to this uh, pristine state without humans. And the literature, this new literature on 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 national parks in the United States were trying to point out that, in fact, people always lived in these areas. People always used the resources of this area, uh, the natural resources existing in these areas that were protected. And by creating parks that were deemed to be parks without people, they were actually displacing and, and preventing people from, from having access to uh, these uh, protected areas other than uh, as a tourist or as a scientific researcher. Um, in the case of, of in the case of Mexico, what you have is um, in the 1930s you have parks being created in Mexico as you have parks being created in Argentina and Brazil and, and Chile. but in Mexico, the parks that were created, they were created in the context of, of the, uh, the post-revolutionary uh, 
of post-revolutionary ideas. So you have this push for agrarian reform. You have this idea that um, any kind of policy, any kind of agrarian policy needs to to serve the needs of the people, of the people who are living on the land. So the parks that were created in Mexico, they were created to uh, to that in mind. So they did not, at this moment, they uh, they did not were designed to remove people. They were designed to to preserve natural resources that will be used by this uh, agrarian rural population that were living inside or nearby these parks. Um, in Argentina, you have this paradigm that's totally different. Parks are created to colonize borderlands and they are going to be used as these tools of colonization. In Brazil, you have a more haphazard uh, standard in that some of the parks are created to develop borderlands, to develop frontiers. You have that in the case of Iguazu in the 1930s and 1940s. You also have some of some parks that are created to develop frontiers uh, in the 1960s in, this, in central Brazil, as you have this push uh, to develop central Brazil, have the construction of Brasilia, the new capital city. You also have the creation of several national parks in that area of Brazil. And in the 1970s, when the military regime uh, devised all these plans for development and colonization of the Amazon, included in these plans, you also have the creation of some national parks. That's, these are the first national parks that are created by Brazil in the Amazon. They were created by the military regime in the 1970s as part of this push to develop the Amazon. So you have that, but I also have national parks created in other parts of Brazil for other reasons. So the Brazilian system, maybe because Brazilians, Brazil is so big, the Brazilian system is less, uh, was less coherent up until the 1980s. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. Brazil as a huge and very diverse landscape um, has has unique challenges to to control of that landscape. Um, so my next question for you is is kind of about the way the way you structure. Um, the book itself and particularly the last two chapters of the book, because the first several chapters sort of tell a, a coherent binational story where you're, you're talking about similar processes as they play out in, in Brazil and Argentina. Um, but the last two chapters take a, a, a different kind of approach. And, and so um, in the sixth chapter, you're looking at surveillance practices as repeated practices that produce a landscape. And in your seventh, you use, aerial imaging to to look at the landscape transformation. So um, can you talk first about what um, what made you organize this information in this way and then and then a little bit about what what this look helps us understand? Okay. Um, so when I I was I sat down to write um, this book was um, came from my my PhD dissertation and um, the structure was already in place so I, I developed this structure while I was doing my PhD dissertation and one of the challenges when I sat down to write uh, this story was how to deal with the fact that you have things happening on two sides of the border at the same time one of the things that I realized in the process is that um, this was both a comparative history and also a connected history. A comparative because I was comparing the two sides of the border um, and also because uh, historical actors on the two sides of the borders were comparing, uh, were looking at what was happening on the other side of the border of the border and was acting in response to that. So you have this kind of like national park uh, race, uh, the race to see who's going to create the national parks first. So they, the actors themselves are comparing, are seeing what's happening across the border. But this is, all, is also a connected uh, history 
not only connected by the fact that you have a borderland, that people are crossing the, the border all the time, but also because uh, the parks, although they developed totally uh, independent from each other, they uh, develop because of each other. And at first, I, I was trying to, to write chapters that would be, that would tell, each chapter would tell parts of this history of the creation of parks in parallel, uh, the same chapter, but that didn't work out. And then I eventually I create this structure where I have two chapters about Brazil, two chapters about Argentina, and I go kind of go back and forth. And that made, made it easier for me to tell this, this story. Um, the fifth and the sixth chapters, uh, they are different in that I try to talk about, um, I go deeper into the connections between the two sides of the border. And I try to talk about the two sides of the border at the same time. So the sixth, the fifth chapter is about uh, poaching and hunting and, and, and heart of palm harvesting inside the parks. And one of the things that it's interesting about this, these parks is that the parks have their boundaries, uh, have their national park boundaries, but they also have an international boundary that divides them. Uh, the boundary between Brazil and Argentina. So when you have people from one side of the border, for example, people from Brazil crossing the border uh, to enter the national park in Argentina and poach there happening, you have a different, uh, a series of like border crossings that are happening at the same time. So I... I noticed that happening. So one example of that, uh, people would uh, cross the border uh, to poach or, okay, let's, let's start again. So one example of that, um, park rangers in Argentina were continuously accusing uh, Brazilians of crossing the border to uh, enter the national park in Argentina and, and hunt there. And when I was reading the reports, I was not 100% sure uh, these people were actually Brazilian, but eventually I did some uh, some deeper research and I found out that all these people were Brazilian. And they were doing that uh, because the legislation in Argentina was not as severe as in Brazil. And also because once they cross the border back to Brazil, uh, national port, uh, People in, in Argentina, uh, rangers in Argentina, they didn't have the means to prosecute the people who were poaching in Argentina, the Brazilians who were poaching in Argentina. So uh, the border gave them this protection. They, they would not be uh, uh, deported back to, to Argentina to be prosecuted there. So we have this all these border dynamics happening that I, I was trying to... to uh, show in this chapter and it was necessary for me to talk about the two sides of the border at the same time. I was following uh, rangers. I was trying to understand how these parks were created as spaces of nature protection on the ground, what kind of spatial practices were necessary to create these parks as spaces of protection. So I follow uh, the national park rangers uh, as they travel through uh, the the uh, outback of these parks, they travel. They try to patrol these parks, so trying to follow them, doing that, trying to understand not only how these parks were created uh, by planners, uh, by people who were making the maps, but also by people on the ground trying to uh, in, uh, enforce uh, these parks these places as, as, as protected areas. In the case of my last chapter, uh, I had, when I was doing my, my PhD at Stanford, one of the things that I, I did was to get involved with 
uh, the spatial history, he, spatial history initiative there. So you have, at the time I was there, you have this lab that was doing a lot of uh, spatial history uh, work with GIS. And I know I wanted to do something with that, uh, with this book. And when I was in Brazil, I stumbled upon on a, an archive there. I stumbled upon this collection of 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 aerial images that uh, were produced by um, the government of the state of Paraná in 1953 that surveyed the entire region of the state. So they had these high-definition images of the park in 1953, which is, was uh, right before settlers had entered the park. They also had some uh, images that were produced uh, of the park in 1980. So I decided to use that to reconstruct the landscape before and after uh, the creation of the Brazil, uh, the creation of Brazil, not before and after the creation of Brazilian Park, but before and after uh, the occupation of, of the park by settlers to understand changes in the landscape. And eventually I end up also using um, some uh, images that were produced by this spy, spy satellite program by the United States called Corona in the 1960s to, under, to see how the, the landscape of the park uh, looked, looked like in the 1960s. And that allowed me to look at this borderland from above, look at this borderland as a whole uh, in a different scale, in a scale that usually my written sources didn't allow me to do it, uh, to have this um, grand vision of this borderland, both in terms of like uh, diachronically and synchronically, in terms of like the landscape and also in terms of like the time, and told a history, told the history of the of the change in the landscape in this borderland throughout these decades, both inside the national parks and outside and surrounding area. Um, and that's how I, I, I finished the book with this last, last chapter. I, I think that's really interesting. Um, the way that you bring it back kind of to your, um, bring it back to the, the, the visual analysis and to looking at the landscape, um, and using these images as sources. I think that's a really cool aspect of, of this particular book. This is something that, um, for, I don't know why, but um, environmental historians, at least those trained as historians, uh, for some reason, they haven't used uh, aerial images and satellite images as as sources uh, as much as they should. This is interesting because um, when you look at other disciplines like um, um Archaeology, for example, they use um, historical aerial images uh, to identify uh, historical sites before development happened in the last 50 years. But for some reason, environmental historians have not used those type of sources. Uh, and I think I was one of the first people to use that, at least that I know. I don't know, like the first environmental historian to use that um, aerial images to try to reconstruct uh, past landscapes. You have people from from other disciplines that do some sort of like environmental history, but they're not trained as historians. But the historians haven't used that, and they're not. And I hope that they start using that more because, um, beginning in nineteen forties, nineteen fifties, you have large parts of the globe being surveyed by by aircraft and later by by satellites, and you have all this sources that could be used not only for environmental history, but all sorts of different types of history. And I hope more historians start to use those type of sources. There's a real explosion of information actually available for the more recent stages of history. Um, yeah, that, that that's a good point. Um, and it, it does go along with both the, the advancement of technology and then also the advancement of sort of security uh, concerns on the parts of yeah. states. Uh, and can, state capacity too. Yeah, state capacity. That makes sense. Um, so I, I want to, my final question about the book is, is kind of about this tension between when you're talking about nature 
and the nation. Um, because as you note in the book, if, if you're if you're going to try to control poaching, if you're going to think about biodiversity, if you want to talk about the Atlantic forest, um, there is this. These are things that are not contained by national borders. So it's a story in in some c- cases of collaborating across borders. Um, but as you note, there's there's this um, continued rest reticence to do too much collaborating. This isn't a peace park, as you as you know, right? These two parks have not created a kind of shared space of of easy travel across. It's one of the more um, controlled tourist destinations that you can you can go to in Brazil. Um, so, how did thinking about these spaces as national parks change the way that Brazil and Argentina related to each other? Um, and then how how do those border negotiations sort of continue in the present day? That's that's a great question. <clears throat> so, um, when I was there doing at the border doing my research, I interviewed a lot of different people there on the two sides of the border, um, national park uh, rangers and the directors of the parks, people working for the national park agencies, uh, people who uh, worked for for the parks before, like retired employees who had started working in the 1940s, 1950s, uh, people from surrounding communities. And I got a sense that despite the fact that this, um, especially from the 2000s, 2000s on, when you have the creation of the of the Mercosur, which is the common economic market between Brazil and Argentina, and for locals, even for any Brazilian or Argentine national, crossing the border is not much of a big deal. You can cross with your ID. You don't need a passport. And have a lot of people crossing the border, uh, all sides of the border, including Brazil, Argentina, and Paraguay, all the time. Despite all that, despite all this integration, uh, despite this the border being pretty open and, and porous for uh, n- nationals of the three countries, you have a, among many different people a sense that the border is something to be uh, defended. Um, in the case of like um, Argentina, for example, um, some of the people working for the national park there were suspicious of talking to me because not only I was coming from the United States, but I also was Brazilian. So they were not, initially, they were not willing to talk to me about the national park because um, they thought it was something that could be a breach of national security because I was not only a foreigner, but I was from Brazil, from across the border, uh, asking all these questions. And when I asked about, asked rangers about collaboration or asked also scientists about collaboration, they all told me that since the 1980s, you have collaboration happening informally at the lower levels. Uh, you have rangers doing patrols together. Uh, you have scientists doing some research together. Like you have like since the 1980s, I have all this re- research done on, on the carnivores in the park, on jaguars and, and, and mountain lions there. And you have scientists from the two sides of the border working together. But at the level of the of the directors of the national parks, you don't have, like at the formal level, we don't have that collaboration. And every time they try to do that, it didn't advance. It did because uh, you have the people from the, from the national park agencies on the two sides not being willing to do that collaboration. It did because uh, legislation is different. Uh, it did because people are not willing to share their secrets or whatever. So you still have the sense that uh, the parks are the last line of defense of of national sovereignty and people people on the ground, they are willing to defend that, to defend that idea. Well, so um, thank you so much for talking about 
um, your book about nationalizing nature, I was wondering um, what's next on the table for you? What do you have? What are you working on now or in the future? Yeah, thank you for having me. So um, my next project, um, I'm moving from the borderland to the center of the country. And I'm doing an environmental history of Brasilia, which is the modernist capital, national capital that was built by Brazil in the 1950s. Um, people tend to think about Brasilia as this uh, artificial construct, uh, the city that was built from scratch in five years, uh, following this, this modernist, high modernist design that uh, tried to recreate Brazilian society from scratch and failed. And I'm trying to move a little bit beyond that to look at uh, the role of nature in the construction of Brasilia. Brasilia was built on this area of Brazil that was a high-altitude savanna. And the people who, the first proponents of Brasilia, they all came from the coast, from areas of Atlantic forest, and, not, and they were not used to this different type of, of environment, different type of landscape. So um, I'm trying to th- think about what kind of the ways in which they envisioned Brasilia, the ways in which they envisioned this new society, urban society, to relate with the with the natural environment that was to receive this this city. Uh, and what happens after Brazilian was was built in terms of like uh, the modernist plan and the way it relates to the nature uh, from like the actual savanna to uh, natural resources like water uh, to things like um, pollution and and sanitation, these kind of things. That so that's my next project. That's uh that's really fabulous. I love the the idea of a natural history of of this sort of modernist uh urban urban planning paradise. Well, thank you so much and and I really appreciate having you on on the podcast. This was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm, it was a pleasure to to talk to you and and I'm very happy that to be here. <laughs>